I was thinking this morning before the service how, you know, they're just, particularly in the internet age, just there's so many words out there, but there are no words like these words. These words are the words of God. They are alive and powerful. And with that spirit, let me read Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Church, if you went to Israel today, uh, when I lead tours there, we, we start up in the north, the Sea of Galilee area, Mount Beatitudes, Capernaum, Nazareth, up in that area. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is this beautiful green area, high green hills, mountains around it. And then uh, after a few days there, we head south, first to the Dead Sea of Masada, then back up to Jerusalem. But when you travel from the Sea of Galilee in the north to the Dead Sea in the south, you go from green to brown. It gets less and less green, more and more brown. All the way down on your left, there is the Jordan River. Uh, over to the left is going to be the Jordan River. You can see the Jordan River Valley most of the way, a couple of big fences. On the other side of the Jordan is the modern country of Jordan. As you are nearing the Dead Sea, as you're getting closer and closer south, uh, you're coming to the place where Jesus was most likely baptized, brown cold uh, waters of the Jordan there. And uh, somewhere in that area, a few miles to the right, in the distance you can see the ancient city of Jericho, the city in our passage today. Now this is the city that the Israelites, when they had wandered 40 years in the desert, on their way from Egypt, they paused at the Jordan River. Remember, Moses had just died. Joshua was leading the people. He stops the river, and it's time to cross over. And the first city he says to go to, to take, is this city of Jericho. Remember, it had the high walls around it. They don't do a thing to uh, fight the, the folks there. They just, in, in obedience to God, go around the city seven days. On the seventh day, God collapses the walls, and they take it. Now, this city of Jericho, where Jesus was, the most... Um, most likely the, the oldest city in the world that has been continuously inhabited and the lowest city in the world. You know, it's down by the, the Dead Sea, way below. And when you get to Jericho, you've got 17 miles 
through the Judean hills, the Judean desert, to get to Jerusalem. Now, this is the city that we're talking about. And in verse 1, we read that Jesus did not come to Jericho, but he came, uh, he entered Jericho and was passing through it. Why was he passing through it? It's because he was on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He'd been doing ministry up at the Sea of Galilee area where he spent most of his time. He would occasionally go down to Jerusalem. But now he is going to Jerusalem for the final time because now he is going to die. I mean, this is the whole reason that he came, so that at the end of his three years of ministry, he would be crucified by the Romans on a cross. And, and, and when he was crucified, God would place our sins upon him and he'd pay for them. And that was the whole reason that he came. So he is resolved. He's headed to Jerusalem. So he enters Jericho, going through, and, and the city is abuzz because they've heard the word that Jesus is coming. This miracle-working, uh, incredible prophet who teaches like no one has ever taught. And stories are that he feeds thousands, and he walks on water, and he's raised the dead even. It's just incredible things. And in that city is a tax collector, a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. Those of you who grew up in a church... You learned a little song about Zacchaeus when, he was, when you were little, probably. Zacchaeus is wealthy. In fact, verse 2 tells us that he was a chief collector, chief, a chief tax collector, and he was rich. We don't see the term chief tax collector anywhere else in the New Testament. So he not only was wealthy like the other tax collectors, but he had tax collectors underneath him, no doubt a stream of income flowing each of them. He probably was fabulously wealthy. You can imagine he lived on a big house on the hills overlooking the city, uh, but he was ostracized from all of society. Couldn't, couldn't go to synagogue, couldn't uh, even participate in a court of law as a witness. He was completely ostracized. He found, no doubt, what wealthy people have found throughout time. That is that wealth can buy some nice things, but it doesn't fill the hole in the human heart. And I think we're going to see that Zacchaeus was spiritually hungry. He wanted some kind. He'd heard about Jesus. And the whole city was a buzz. But, but if you were Zacchaeus and you were completely ostracized, wouldn't you especially be interested in Jesus? Because Jesus hung out with tax collectors that nobody else had anything to do with. He hung out with that kind of people. Jamie Winship was down in one of the Caribbean islands recently, and, and there was an arms dealer there who came to Christ. And, you know, I, and, and I think that's the kind of person that Jesus would hang out with, the arms dealer. And he had heard the stories that, that Jesus would hang with tax collectors. And that even, rumor has it, that one of his disciples had been a tax collector. It's hard for us to understand what a tax collector meant in that day. But just think Benedict Arnold. The most famous traitor in American history. Benedict Arnold. The tax collectors, it wasn't just that they... Uh, we grew rich out of gouging the people, but they were working for the enemy. I mean, they were traitors to their people, to their land. And, and this is Zacchaeus, so excited that, that this man is coming that all the country's talking about, and he apparently cares about tax collectors. So, uh, people are lining the streets because it says that Zacchaeus was short, he was small of stature. Um, and, and, and so he runs ahead and climbs up this sycamore tree so he can see him. What I think of, Bruce, is being at the Shell Houston Open 
when it used to be at uh, the Woodlands. And, you know, you, you get the big golfers there, and you can't see over them because it's so thick with people. Some of y'all been there, that kind of thing. You know, you can't see over the crowd. He has no shame. He climbs up a tree, <laughs> climbs up the sycamore tree because he wants to look into the eyes of this man, see who he's all about. All righty. Then the drama picks up. Verse 5, Jesus is coming closer and closer. Zacchaeus is, you know, he's more and more anticipation, more and more excitement. He's getting closer and closer. Verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, that is, where Zacchaeus was in that tree, he probably comes just right underneath it, right close to it. When Jesus came to the place, he, he looks up. So he stops, looks up, and, and looks right into his face and calls him by name. Never met him. Zacchaeus. And, and if you're Zacchaeus, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> wow, he knows my name. He knows my name. And, and don't you know that Zacchaeus, with everybody else except the, the, the fellow tax collectors, that he looked into the eyes of people who had nothing but contempt for him. That's Benedict Arnold. Contempt, disgust, hatred. But he looks into the eyes of Jesus, and there is love, tender love, compassion. I care about you. I mean, what would that have been like? More than that, his heart's racing, his heart's pounding. Jesus stops, calls him Zacchaeus, and then he says this. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house tonight. Not I might stay there, not perhaps I will stay there, not I hope to stay there, not I'd like to stay there, but I must stay at your house, Zacchaeus. I got to. Got an appointment here, a divine appointment. Can you imagine what Zacchaeus is feeling, experiencing? You know, Zacchaeus is, is there in that tree, and maybe he doesn't know why he's there in that tree. Maybe he doesn't know why he's so interested in Jesus. But he apparently is spiritually hungry. And that wealth is not satisfying his soul, just like it doesn't for us. And he's longing for something. I just can't help but just remember my senior year in high school. And, and uh, this was kind of in the 60s, even though it was 1972, it was really the 60s. And, um, and I was hungry for God. I had a nominal church background, but it was just more religion, churchianity to me. And I, I just was looking for a cause. I, I was a conscious objector. I was a vegetarian. I had named my German shepherd Gandhi after Mahatma Gandhi. You know, I'm looking for meaning and purpose. And... Um, I come across a college reading list that if you go to college and you're well-read, you ought to at least have read the Bible and the Odyssey. So I start reading through the Bible all my senior year. You know, every day I'm reading through the Bible. And uh, by the end of, by the time I graduate, I've almost read through the Bible. And I don't know it, but I am hungry for God. Uh, looking back, I was spiritually hungry. I started because of intellectual pride, but I finished because I was spiritually hungry. And, and I'm seeking God. And, and the Bible... Uh, says that if you're seeking God, it is because God is first seeking you, that he is a, a, a sinner-seeking kind of God. And that day on the beach at Galveston, there was a Christian rock group there because this was the uh, time of the Jesus movement. Some of you kind of experienced that a little bit. And uh, there was a Christian rock group on the beach, and there was a young man, and I wanted somebody to stop and talk with me. You know, his day was going by, getting close to leaving, and I'm warning somebody, hey, somebody talk with me about this. Why? Because I'm spiritually hungry like Zacchaeus is. He wants to see Jesus. And that day, Rusty Draper talked with me about Christ, and I committed my life to Christ. And 
um, began this journey that I've been on, the best thing I've ever done. So Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus stops. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I want to go to your house. Zacchaeus hurries and comes down. Uh, how did the crowd respond in verse 6? You know, they're grumbling about it. Verse 7, actually, and when they saw it, when they, the crowd, saw it. I mean, the crowd's packed. You know, Houston open. You know, people everywhere. He's stopping at Zacchaeus. He's going to go to Zacchaeus' house, the Benedict Arnold. Not George Washington, but Benedict Arnold. Verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He is going to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Oh. You know, worse than a Gentile. And they're grumbling. Jesus doesn't care. He never let the approval of man slow him down. Mark 2.17, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Truth be known, they were all sinners. Those are the people I came for. And so uh, they're all grumbling about it. Jesus and Zacchaeus, no doubt were the 12 disciples, probably a retinue of servants in in Zacchaeus' house, are having a dinner. At one point, Zacchaeus stands up to talk. Now, you get the feel here. It's not like Zacchaeus is reclined back on his arm and just kind of throws in a comment. He pauses, straightens up, stands up, so he gets everybody's attention. You know what the situation is. It's kind of like the rehearsal dinner when the best man at some point, he doesn't just kind of whip off a toast. He pauses, scoots his chair back, and stands up. So everybody hears what he's got to say. That's Zacchaeus. He pauses and stands up and speaks to Jesus, calls him Lord. And he says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Okay, half? Man, I don't care how wealthy you are, half is a lot. That's a lot of money. Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll reimburse them four times the amount. Wow. Now, Jesus hadn't said anything, at least recorded, about money or giving. What's going on here? Well, no doubt Zacchaeus has tasted the grace of God. And when you taste the grace of God, you cannot help but want to pour out grace and generosity to others. It just happens every time. The money is kind of the acid test. Are you in a love affair or do you just have religion? And you know, um, folks, Earwood's Edge, y'all are so generous. You're so generous. And, and, and no doubt it's because of your love relationship with Jesus. I mean, uh, just the, the money that you just are generously giving, that, that's why we can take 50% of our income and pass it outside the walls of Wood's Edge because you're so generous. And it, it, it's ultimately about a love relationship with Jesus. And let me say this, if you consider yourself a believer and you're not generous, then maybe you've got religion or churchianity and not a love relationship. Because when you taste the overwhelming grace and love of God, you can't help but be generous, as we see here with Zacchaeus. Jesus responds, uh, he says uh, to Zacchaeus, he says, Today salvation has come to this house, the household of Zacchaeus, the Benedict Arnold of the city, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now, was he Jewish? Probably not. It's possible. But normally, the Romans contracted with Jews to collect the taxes. So probably, especially being a chief tax collector. But Jesus says, he is a son of Abraham. What's that mean? 
Well, Abraham is the first guy in the Bible that is considered the model of faith. In fact, the first time we come across the phrase, the language, justified by faith, we talked about that a few weeks ago. You're declared right with God, righteous, right with God by faith. The first time that's used is Genesis 15, 6 of Abraham. And he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was right with God by his faith. And then all through the New Testament, uh, time after time, when we get an example from the Old Testament of faith, the most common man is Abraham. He appears in the New Testament more than any Old Testament figure, and clearly the example of faith. Romans 4, uh, Romans 3, Hebrews 11, other places, Galatians 3. In fact, Galatians 3, 7 says this. It says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So what's Jesus saying? He's got the faith of Abraham. He's got the same faith in God that Abraham had. He doesn't say, this man, salvation has come to his house because he gave his money away. Mm, it's deeper than that. It's because he's a man of faith. And because of that, he gives his money away. He's a man of faith. He's got faith, and so salvation has come. And friends, that is the way any of us receive the salvation of God, by putting our faith, our trust, our belief in a Savior. We look, look away from ourselves to be good enough, and we trust a Savior who is perfect. And we say, Jesus, would you save me? So he gladly, graciously gives that money away. Martin Luther once put it this way. He said, people go through three conversions, and not always at the same time. They converge their head, converge their heart, and then they converge their wallet. And uh, Zacchaeus went through those conversions pretty quick. Then Jesus closes this brief, poignant, powerful little story by giving his life mission. If there is ever a place in the New Testament where the life mission of Jesus is given by him, it's right here. He says, for the Son of Man. Salvation has come to this house. He's the Son of Abraham. He's got faith. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That's my purpose in life. That's why I came, to seek and to save the lost. The lost. Who are the lost? Those who are lost from their God. You know, it's Wizard of Oz. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. I've mentioned before that when I travel without Gail to one of our missionary places and, and I'm gone for a week, you know, I'm starting to miss her after a day or so. And I just, it's sort of intuitive in my heart, you know, my home is wherever Gail is. You know, my home, uh, where I feel at rest, at peace, is not 98 West Cresta Bend. That's a bunch of bricks. My home is wherever Gail is because I belong with her. Now, in a deeper sense, our home is with God. He made us. He made us for himself. He is our God. That's why Augustine could say, oh, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Because he's home. He's home. And anybody who's not home with God, not been saved, not been rescued, not in a love relationship with him, you're lost. You're lost. And you need to get found. And the whole reason Jesus came was to seek you and to save you. He came to seek and to save lost people. He loves them. Loves them. Just like he loves Zacchaeus. The Benedict Arnold of his day. Jesus came for those kind of people. Jesus did not come to save good people. He came to save lost people. There are no good people. Jesus did not come to save godly people, but lost people. There are no godly people. They're all, all lost, all sinners. 
whether or not you became a believer when you're four or five years old and you don't even remember it, or you became a believer, you know, last week and you vividly remember it, uh, the only reason that you come to faith is because Jesus sought you. He was seeking you. He was drawing you, just like he was drawing me during my senior year in high school. I'm reading through the Bible, and he's just drawing me in, just drawing me in. Hungry for God, hungry for God. Zacchaeus, he's drawing Zacchaeus, creating this earth. If you are in the kingdom of God, it is because Jesus has searched for you and found you. Now, if you're here today and you're not sure you're in the kingdom, you're not sure, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, um, He is searching for you and seeking you right now. Or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't enter a place that's kind of dangerous spiritually, you know, a Bible-believing church like this, unless he wasn't, uh, if he was not drawing you. So right now, he's drawing you. Get found. Get found. Come to him. Just breathe a prayer. Jesus, I'm coming home. I need a Savior. Now, so uh, we see here that Jesus, the, the Lord God, came to this earth to seek lost people to save lost people. And he saved us, of course, by dying on the cross for us. He came for this reason, seeking to save us. But here's the thing. If that's his life mission, and we're his followers, isn't that our life mission too? To seek and to save lost people? To be all about lost people? To be reaching out? Sometimes I hear, you know, I've got this job, and there are all kind of Christians here, and I'm thinking, that's too bad. You know, you need some lost people around you. So you can, so God can use you. Um, if you're newer at Woods Edge, you may not know about our top five. This is a basket filled with well over a thousand names, I'm sure, and they are people that we're praying for. They're people that uh, in our lives, neighbors, folks at work, maybe relatives that we don't, we think that maybe they don't know the Lord yet, and, and we're going to pray daily and try to love them and reach out to them. And I ask you to. If you don't have a top five, you know, ask God for your top five and put them on this cards, and we're going to be praying for them. Just add them after the service or during communion. Just add your top five right there. And let's be praying together that God would reach them because God uses people so often as he's drawing folks, just like he used Rusty Draper with me. He so often uses people, and he wants to use you and me. He does. A week and a half ago, Tim Martin on our staff team, Tim and I go to the prison at Navasota. You guys know Navasota? An hour west, you know, on the way to NM, and uh, there is a men's prison there, and it's uh, you know serious offenders. You know, offenders been there decades, some of them, and uh, uh, a number of folks at Woods Edge are involved with jail ministry and prison ministry. But I've never done that. You know, once briefly as a youngster, I visited a prison, but never uh, never really done this uh, as a pastor. And I just sort of felt that God wanted me to do that. So on a Thursday night, we drive to Navasota, and we go into this prison. And by the way, um, Vonnie Taylor in our uh, church, a woman, uh, you probably picked that up when I said Vonnie. Vonnie Taylor uh, really launched this ministry. Deb Martin, Tim's wife, Lana Bowen, all of them go every week spending hours with these uh, prisoners there. Uh, On, I think it's Monday nights, Charles Culpepper and Bob McComas also go to this prison. And so they've regularly got this influx of Woods Edgers who come and care about them every week. And, and, and now those prisoners there who go to the weekly Thursday night church service, they consider themselves 
Woods Edge West. And, and, and I told them, we are honored to have Navasota Prison be Woods Edge West. Honored to have you. And, and um, guys, I had, had just this most incredible experience. Uh, they were the nicest people. Now, I'm sure there are some real mean folks there and who are bitter and angry, but they didn't come to the church service, I guess, or at least they didn't come to, you know, up to meet me. But the guys that I talked with are the most humble, gracious, sweet men, group of men that I've ever been around. I think it's because uh, they've been broken and they know their need and they have tasted the grace of God and they don't take it for granted. The cross of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, and boy, was the worship rich. Tim and I both shared our stories and I just had the best time. I wish every Christian at Wood's Edge would go to a prison or a jail and experience what I experienced. Uh, we've got various prison ministries around. Well, uh, the story, by the way, one of the guys there had been in prison 30 years. You know, most of them that came, you know, has already, have already come to Christ, but some Muslims come at times, and this Wiccan guy came, and Tim led him to Christ afterwards. And, you know, they're, they're like uh, every other lost people. They're, they're just, they're, they want truth and life and love, and, and they're needy. Um, I, uh, Charles Culpepper is one of the guys that goes regularly. Charles is, I think I saw Charles somewhere in here. And uh, Charles told us that in the spring, yeah, I see Charles right Charles, raise your hand. Stand up. Stand up. If Bob's with you, stand up. That's Charles Culpepper. Okay, Charles, um, um, Charles said that in the spring they baptized 35 of them, and he said it was so sweet because they had the prisoners who were instrumental in leading other prisoners to Christ do the baptizing. They'd never done that. And, and, he, and he wrote this little email about um, the experience, and it just sounds so good, Charles. He said, the joy and celebration of this baptism was the biggest, happiest, wildest party you can imagine. With water splashing everywhere, men literally lifting men with physical infirmities into the baptistry, men washing and drying the feet of those who had just been baptized, and everyone getting soaking wet from the profuse hugging going on after they've been baptized. Now, is that not a great picture? Can you see that? Can you see? Can you see these uh, guys? Some of them have been in, in, in jail for 30, 40 years down on the floor with a towel drying off their prisoners' feet. I mean, how sweet and tender is that? They've tasted the grace of God. I'm so grateful. He goes on. He said, one of the prisoners was led to Christ by a 78-year-old man. This uh, man who just came to Christ confessed that he was a practicing Muslim who was put in a maximum security prison at age 14 for murder. Later, well, he continued his extreme violence. Later, he got out of prison because they sent him into a special forces tra as a trained killer. But apparently he killed somebody else or something, and he got put back into prison. And now he has come to Christ, and he and, and it said he was in tears as he shared the terrible things he had done, but now knew and experienced the amazing forgiveness of his heavenly Father and his new life in Christ. Now, friends, that's why we're on the planet, for lost people. And you don't have to go to Navasota Prison for that. There are lost people on your street, in your apartment complex, in your workplaces, at the mall, and God is drawing them. He's drawing them. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a couple of young high schoolers, one down the front row here, uh, came to me after the service or before the service and said, I want to tell you what's been going on at the mall. And uh, these high schoolers in our ministry have been going to the mall, and they'll pray together first, have a Bible study, and, and they'll go around the mall, and they will ask people, you know, in small groups, two or three, uh, is there something I could pray for you? And, um, you know, just about everybody says, or 80% of them say, yes, we can, we can. And they 
have had these conversations. They're praying with folks. Um, one of them, and by the way, um, now there's 30 or 40 of them who have gone to do this. And at times there's a group of 10 or 15. They'll study the Bible together and they'll break up and go out. But uh, Justin tells me that now, well, they'll just go any time and every day. Groups of two or three just go to the mall on their own. And they will go around and, and ask people if they can pray for them and talk with them about Christ. And one little story, apparently from a ninth grader, he was talking to one of the food sample guys in the food court about Christ. And, and the guy was, in, you know, overwhelmed with, you know, what, what he was saying about God and the kingdom of God. He said, can you come back and, and bring some Bibles and talk with some of my friends here in the food court? The, the, the ninth grader goes to Barnes & Noble and asks to borrow, not buy, borrow 12 Bibles. <laughs> they give him 12 Bibles. He brings them back to the food court. They study the Bible for two hours to learn about Jesus. Isn't that something? Um, way to go, guys. Way to go. My understanding is that when a group of them go, there are about 100 people that they pray with. You know, hundreds and hundreds of people at the Woodlands Mall have been prayed for, and some of them are hearing about Jesus. Um, God wants to use you and me. And, and I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I do. I know about you guys. Um, you're like me. You feel convicted as well as excited by those stories, don't you? Because you need to raise the bar. Who else feels convicted by it besides me? Am I the only one? No, you're not. I mean, we need to raise the bar. We're, we're challenged by these high schoolers and, and by these prisoners who are baptizing each other. You know, there's a, a young man that's become a friend of Tim Martin who's moved to the city uh, specifically to help disciple-making movements. That's what we're all about here. So, uh, you know, he's at his apartment complex. He's a guy, by the way, all tattooed up, and uh, some of you know Ray Vaughn. And he was in and out of jail till he was 16 and got converted. And, and now his purpose, he, he walks around his apartment complex prayer walking, and when he runs into somebody, he says, hey, I'm praying for people in the complex. What can I pray for you today? And they just about all say yes. Now, Ray has a follow-up question that I really liked. I hadn't heard this before I heard the Ray Vaughn story. Uh, after they say, you tell him what that is, he says, hey, today, would you say you're close to God or far from God? And if they say far from God, which most of them do, he says, well, can I just take a few minutes to tell you how you can be close to God? Shares the gospel with them. And guys, there's lost people around our lives, in our worlds. And... Uh, you know, we don't have to be obnoxious and rude about it, but we can be alert to the Spirit of God who's drawing people around us and have the inordinate privilege of being a part of what God's doing. And we can do that. We can do that. In our neighborhoods, in our work worlds, Walmart, wherever we are. And it will be the most exciting thing that we can be a part of because that's our mission, seeking to save lost people. Stand with me, please. Friend, if you're in the room and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your moment. Breathe a prayer right where you're standing and say, yes, Jesus, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. Lord, for the rest of us that we've done this, Lord God, please, Lord, give us love and boldness and courage. Lord, I need it. We need it. Because we know you want to draw people all over Houston and beyond into your kingdom, into your family. And we want to partner. Give us grace. Give us grace. Lord, these are our prayers in Christ's name.